I need to say just a few things before I start. If you're like me, I come to Shepherd's Conference for many reasons. But at the head of the list is to hear John MacArthur preach. And no one wants to hear John MacArthur preach today more than I do. <laughs> that was not meant to be a joke. <laughs> I have been coming to Shepherd's Conference since 1983. That's 40 years ago. We met over in the chapel, which was only half full. And over the years, these last 40 years, there's been one constant voice in my spiritual life. And that voice is John MacArthur. And I pray that he can be with us tomorrow. And I think that 5% of John MacArthur is worth more than the whole evangelical world put together. He is the shepherd of the Shepherds Conference. He has shepherded us for more than four decades. His understanding of the scripture, his convictions, the fidelity of his life, his outspokenness, his pastor's heart, his prophetic voice has been really a landmark for us. And I know that we are gathered here because he has been really the anchor man for us. And so I think that we should pray for John, that God will give him a quick recovery, and that he will be here, because I need to hear whatever it is that he has to say more than any man in this room. So no one can fill the pulpit in the place of John MacArthur. It, it would take 40,000 men to try to fill that footprint but I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to preach to you today. So please know my heart on this. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 9. And several months ago, I was asked to preach on Romans chapter 9, a message entitled the election of the remnant. So I must warn you, this will be an R-rated sermon. R for Reformed. <laughs> Code word for Bible. <laughs> so today we will be putting with a driver. And so I want to begin reading in verse 10. I, I have 18 verses to look at. I've never preached 18 verses of an epistle in my life. So we'll see how, how this goes. I'll end when I end. I want to begin reading in verse 10 this Mount Everest of a passage of Scripture that really is the signature text in the entire Bible for the subject of the sovereignty of God in salvation. This looms over the horizon of inspired Scripture and countless other passages that address this subject, but this is, this is the cornerstone for the doctrine of sovereign election. And as we think about the remnant Tying these two together, the election of the remnant. This is our focus today. Beginning in verse 10, this is the Word of God. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, 
when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or evil or good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend upon the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His his wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is, here it is, it is the remnant that will be saved. In these verses... And in this last verse, we find the word, which is the theme for our conference. It is the word remnant. A remnant refers to a small portion of a much larger whole. Today, a a carpet shop or a fabric shop will have a remnant section way in the back, and it contains the leftovers, the, the scraps that were sold, are being sold at a reduced discount. They're of little value to a buyer. They're of little use to anyone. They're a remnant. They are already in a state of being discarded. They're ready to be thrown away because they seem to be so small and so insignificant. In this passage, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul depicts the people of God. Whether Jews or Gentiles, we are the remnant. We are a small fraction of the whole. 
And in the eyes of the world, we are the leftovers. We are the scraps. We are those that have little to no value. And this is how Jesus said it would be, that the many are on the broad road headed for destruction, but that the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And Jesus referred to his disciples as the little flock. So we're not surprised to open Romans 9 and see the word remnant here, because it has always been but a small portion of the world population that God has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be His people. The remnant is who we are, and it is who God has entrusted to our care to shepherd them and to pastor them. We are the elect of God, rejected by the world, but chosen by God. We are those who are overlooked by the world, but foreordained by God. We are those unknown by the world, yet foreknown by God. We are those who are persecuted by the world, yet predestined by God. We are the remnant, the small, the few, the little, yet precious in the sight of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, God has always done His greatest work through a remnant. Get rid of the notion of numbers. Spurgeon has said, the majority is always wrong. The majority never stands with Christ. The majority is never with God. God has always chosen to work through His chosen little flock. And as God has placed us in churches and placed us in in ministries, and as we look around and and see the size of the world and the, the movements that are taking place, and we see what is a relatively small number of people that God has entrusted to us, let us remember how precious they are to God because they are the remnant. So as we look at Romans 9, we want to see the election of the remnant. And I have five headings that I want to set before you as we walk through this passage to help us define what this doctrine of sovereign election is. And the first heading is in verse 10, it is an unmerited choice. It is an unmerited choice. Paul begins these verses by announcing how undeserving it is for anyone to be chosen to be a part of the remnant. No one deserves to be included among the number of the elect. None has worked for it. None have merited it. So beginning in verse 10, and and not only this, and this refers back to Abraham's family and the election of God out of Abraham's family, that not all Israel is Israel. And not only this, but there was Rebekah, Isaac's wife. Also, when she had conceived twins by by one man through our father Isaac, and those two twins are Jacob and Esau, within the ethnic people of, of Israel. Verse 11, for though the twins had not, were not yet born, God had already made a determinative choice before they were even born, based upon nothing foreseen in them, anything that they would ever do, anything that they would ever be, but that God, before the foundation of the world, God made a determinative, distinguishing, even discriminating choice between two sons coming out of the same womb. One would be chosen for salvation, to be a part of the remnant. The other would be passed over and would be left in his sin. So verse 11 continues that they had not done anything, good or bad. So the choice had nothing to do with them. God did not choose them because of them. God chose them really in spite of them. 
because they were both sinners marred by sin. And here's the reason why. In the middle of verse 11, so that God's purpose, when he says purpose here, prothesis, he's referring to the eternal decree of God. He he, he is referring to that which God carefully thought out, Ephesians 1 verse 11, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Before God created anything, God had already masterminded in His genius of understanding His eternal decree that includes everything that shall come to pass. And in this eternal decree, God's purpose, and the word purpose here shows how resolved God is to carry out His purpose. So that God's purpose, according to His choice, ekloge, it means to be chosen out from among the many, that out of the many there would be a sovereign choice by God the Father before the twins were even born of who would be a part of the remnant and who would remain in their sin. Uh, The word is used in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament before the coming of Christ. Uh, This word, ekloge, it was used to refer to David going down to the riverbed and selecting five stones that he would put into his slingshot to bring down Goliath. There were were many other stones. There were many other rocks, but he hand-selected these five because they would perfectly fit his purpose to go and to take on Goliath. That's the very word that's used here. According to God's choice, out of the mass of humanity, God has singled out and selected those who will be a part of His remnant. And he says that his choice in verse 11, so that it would stand, that that means that it would remain fixed, it would be irrevocable, it would be immutable, it would be unalterable, that once the will of God has been exercised, there is no plan B, there is no alteration of it, that it will stand, not because of works, Referring to Jacob and Esau, it has nothing to do with either one of them because none of their works could have ever merited God's choice. They would have given God a thousand reasons not to choose them. Not because of works, because of Him who calls. And the word calls here refers to the effectual, irresistible call of God that draws into saving relationship with Jesus Christ those who were chosen before the foundation of the world. Sovereign election takes place in eternity past. This effectual call takes place within the appointed time, within the parameters of human history, and it is the call of God that brings to, to Christ the remnant that was chosen by God before the foundation of the world. God's call is so powerful that it raises the dead from the grave of sin to come alive and to be spiritually resurrected and to be quickened unto God. This this call of God It it pierces and penetrates to the very epicenter of a person's soul, and it summons and it arrests the one who is called and even subpoenas the one who is called and draws them irresistibly into faith with Jesus Christ. That's how powerful this call is. And understand this, no one would ever be saved if God did not choose them and God did not call them. So this choice by God was before the twins were yet born. Ephesians 1 verse 4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless 
before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons. Spurgeon said, God must have chosen me before time because he would have never chosen me once he saw me in time. (laughs) And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, the reason that you are a believer is that God sovereignly, royally elected you before time began and called you to himself at the predetermined moment, and when he called, you answered. And if God did not call, no one would ever be saved. So, it was an unmerited call, an unmerited choice. Second, it's an unexpected choice. In verses 12 and 13, in choosing his elect, God often makes the most unexpected choices, the very opposite of what man would have chosen or the world would have chosen. So in verse 12, it was said to her, to Rebekah, the older will serve the younger. Literally in the Greek, the the greater will serve the lesser. This is completely unexpected, and this is a quotation from Genesis 25 and verse 23, which at the time when twins were born, the birthright traditionally went to the firstborn, and the younger would serve the firstborn, the older, for the rest of his life and be in a subsidiary position. But God here reverses the order And God passes over the older, and He chooses the younger, and the greater will become the servant of the lesser. And now He backs it up in verse 13 by quoting Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob, I love. God set his heart of affection and distinguishing love upon the lesser, upon Jacob, and this is a special love. It is a saving love. It it is a redeeming love. There is a general love that God has for all mankind. It's called common grace. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. God even feeds the animals. God allows unbelievers to enter into marriage, to have a job, to enjoy the beauty of creation. I mean, that's a a general benevolence of, of God. But God's saving love is reserved exclusively for the remnant. It is reserved exclusively for the elect. And when he says, Jacob I loved, that means Jacob alone, that I have set my heart upon him to rescue him and to redeem him from his sin. But, by stark contrast, Esau I hated. Radically different than what God has for Jacob. With Esau, he is passed over. With Esau, he is left in his sin. When he says, Esau I hated... It could be taken as love less. I actually take it to mean Esau I detested. Esau I loathed. You may say, how can God hate Esau? I totally understand how God can hate Esau. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God, that's not His love, by the way. The wrath of God is upon every person who is outside of Christ. And any even casual reading of Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, Psalm 11 reveals that God hates not just the sin, 
but God hates the sinner who is resisting Him and rejecting Him. God doesn't send sin to hell. God sends the sinner to hell. Paul Washer has said, I've given God a thousand reasons not to love me. And that is true for each and every one of us. And yet God, from within Himself, has chosen to set His love upon those who are unworthy, who are unmerited, and it is so unexpected. And the reason that God does it this way is so that we can all be reminded that it is God who is the sovereign over our salvation, that this is not following traditional lines or or logical realms of, of thought, but God, for reasons known only to Himself, will choose whom He will choose and save whom He will save, that salvation is of the Lord. God delights in choosing the least and the last to be His remnant. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, the Apostle Paul writes, "'Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many well-educated, not many erudite academic elites, not many mighty, not not many who have clout, not many who, who have influence in the community.'" And not many noble, not many blue buds, not many of noble birth, not many from top drawer. God has just bypassed, for the most part, all of them. And verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, those that the world perceive to be foolish, moronic, moros in the Greek. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, those just in the basement of life, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not. They they have nothing going for them. they're, They're described by the word not. They didn't make who's who, they they made who's not. Why would God do it this way? Why does God choose to reach to the bottom of the barrel and elect the leftovers of this world so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God? This is the way God has chosen to operate. I mean, look around here in this room. I mean, it looks like we just washed up on shore. I mean, this is not exactly looking like a board meeting for some Fortune 500 company looking around. But God has always chosen to sovereignly elect a pagan, moon-worshipping idolater to be the father of the nation Israel. God has always chosen to take a little baby in a basket floating down the Nile River to bring Pharaoh down. God has always chosen to take a little shepherd boy and send him into battle to bring Goliath down. God has always chosen to take some nobody fisherman from Nowheresville and a tax collector to flip the Roman Empire. That's the way God operates. His remnant is the most unexpected choice that there could possibly be. And you may be thinking here today, you know, I'm not as gifted as others. I'm not as intellectually smart as others. I'm not a well, as well-spoken as others. Well, you know what? You are eminently qualified to be a part of the remnant. Because God has always chosen to work with nobodies. God sings solo. He doesn't need duet. He doesn't even need backup. I'll come to verse 14. It's an undefiled choice. 
All God's choices are pure and perfect and, and unmarred by, by any injustice, and no accusation can ever be brought against God for any of the choices that He makes, period, paragraph. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Paul is anticipating what he knows people are thinking, and if they had the opportunity, this is what they would say. This is, Paul is stunningly brilliant. He is a skilled teacher. And he addresses, I know exactly what's on your mind. This is, what you could, this is what you would say if you had the opportunity. There's no injustice with God, is there? Interpreted, that's not fair. That's not fair for God to choose one over another. That's a charge of injustice against God. And if the judge becomes complicit in a crime, he becomes charged with the crime. There's no injustice with God, is there? Is this fair for God to operate like this, to choose who He would like and pass over others? And Paul just immediately slams the door shut on that, and he says, may it never be. In the Greek, it is meganoito. It is the strongest, most emphatic denial that there could possibly be. And loosely translated, it could be no, no, never. God is not unjust. God is not unfair. So he says in verse 15, for, which introduces an explanation for... He, God Himself. So Paul says, I'm going to let God Himself speak for Himself. For He says, and He now quotes Exodus 33, verse 18. For He says to Moses, God says to Moses, in response to Moses saying, show me your glory. In verse 18, this is the glory of God. Put on brilliant display that Moses must go hide behind a rock. It is so stunningly effulgent with the shining glory of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You don't want fair. You want mercy. Fair means you go to hell forever. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. So don't play the fair card. Because you're going to lose the hand big time. No, you want mercy. And you want compassion. But if it's mercy, it is purely undeserved. The word mercy means to show compassion to one who is afflicted. And compassion means to to feel for the one, to feel pity for the one who is afflicted. Mercy becomes the dominant theme in the inner structure of this passage. It's used It's used five times, twice here in verse 15. It's used again in verse 16. It's used again in verse 18. There is this dominant cloud of mercy that is hanging over the the interior of, of, of this passage. And please note, I is used four times in this one verse. Not we, not you, but but I. This is a, a theocentric passage. It, it is all of, of God, that God will have mercy, God will have compassion on whomever He so desires without in any way being unfair. In reality, everyone who goes to hell receives what they deserve. Everyone who goes to heaven receives what they do not deserve. It's called mercy. It's called grace. And so, because it is unearned and undeserved, therefore, 
It's not wages, it's a free gift, and God can give this free gift to whomever He so desires. And no one else can say, hey, what about me? Because you haven't done anything to deserve what He chooses to give to another. Everyone who is chosen receives mercy. And everyone who is not chosen for salvation is left to receive what they deserve, which is eternal punishment. So Paul kind of wraps this up, this little section in verse 16. So then, it has a summation feel, bringing this to a bottom line conclusion, these verses, so then it, referring to salvation, so then it does not depend on the man who wills. Why does salvation not depend upon the man who wills? Because no man would ever will to believe in Jesus Christ left unto themselves. Dead men do not believe. Every unbeliever is held in the chains of their sin and unbelief. And there is the bondage of the will. Spurgeon said, I've heard about free will. I still haven't met him. I sit next to Will, and every Will that I see, Spurgeon says, is in chains. Their Will is either in chains of sin or in chains of Christ and salvation, but no Will is just sitting there without any chains on them. I mean, free Will just a pagan myth. The Loch Ness Monster, the abominable snowman, and free will. (laughs) Name three things you've always heard about but never seen. That's why it does not depend upon the man who wills. If it depended on the man who wills, no one would ever be saved. We're all running away from God. We all are running to our sins. You don't want the choice to be left to you because you will always choose your sin if you're unconverted. And then he adds, or the man who runs. Because all men are running away from God. I mean, earlier in Romans 3 and and, in verse 11, it says, There is none who seeks after God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Um, Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path. And the path of peace they have not known. It doesn't depend upon the man who runs because all men are running away from God. How simple is that? God has to be the pursuer. Martin Luther said, if any man ascribes any of salvation, even the very least to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace and has not learned Jesus Christ aright. Luther also said, man has no free will, but is a captive, a prisoner, and a bond slave, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. And George Whitfield, arguably the greatest evangelist who ever lived since the days of the Apostle Paul, says, man has a free will to go to hell, but he has none to go to heaven. Spurgeon says, man's will must not occupy the throne. The will of God must occupy the throne. Should not Jesus Christ have the right to choose his own bride? And the answer is yes. So verse 17, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and so now we're going to be addressing, or Paul will be addressing those who were not chosen for salvation, those who have been passed over, they are known as the reprobate. This is double predestination. Those who are not chosen for salvation, but they are left in their sin to be hardened. Verse 17, 
4, which introduces an explanation of what was just said. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and he now quotes Exodus 9, verse 16, for this very purpose. Now, purpose is not in the original, it's implied here, and it's a good translation. But for this, I, God as a speaker, raised you, Pharaoh, up to demonstrate. So it's a Greek word that means to, to put on display. Pharaoh, you're going to be like one big billboard in the world upon whom I will set my glory. And what will be made known in Pharaoh? To demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. My purpose for you is to raise you up to bring you down, so that the whole world can see how awesome and how powerful I am, and I will be drowning your entire army in the Red Sea. So, verse 18, so then, it's kind of a summation, so then, he, and he is used four times in in verse 18, again, it's, he is God. This is so God-centered, theocentric. So, he has mercy, which is synonymous with salvation, on whom he desires, the word desires means thaleo, he wills, and he hardens whom he desires. God actively hardens whom He desires. This is adult conversation going on. So, this needs some clarification. This is not saying that God creates sin in the hearts of men. This is not saying that God is the author of evil. This is not saying that God forces people to sin. But it does say that God hardens hearts that are already hardened against Him. That God pours concrete into their heart, and it solidifies their unbelief. And God does this in hearts that are already hardened against Him. In the book of Exodus, ten times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it also says ten times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the first of those is that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the result of that is, if you want your sin, then I will give you over to your sin and I will harden your heart. And that is what God does with the reprobate. God chooses to leave them in their sin, and He hardens them in their sin. This is the doctrine of reprobation, which is the other side of the coin of the doctrine of election. You cannot have the doctrine of election without the doctrine of reprobation. They are the heads and tails of the same coin. So, verse 19, it's an unaccountable choice. God owes no person an explanation for the choices that He has made. God will not be called to give an account for who He has chosen and who He has chosen not to choose. So, in verse 19, we read, you will say to me then, and again, Paul is addressing what we would call an imaginary objector, because he knows human nature, and he knows how people think, and he knows the conclusions to which they will jump. And so, he's like a skilled lawyer who addresses a witness on the stand before the other attorney can address that witness. He brings it up and puts it into the public record. 
And so that is what Paul is doing here. I know what you're going to be talking about after church. I know what you're going to be, the conclusion to which you're going to be coming to, and it is a faulty conclusion. You will say to me then, verse 19, why does he still find fault? How can God hold people responsible? How can God assign blame? That's not right for God to do this. For who resists his will? It's a very arrogant question, which is calling God into account. As if God can be brought into the courtroom and put onto the witness stand, and God can be cross-examined, and God can be questioned about what God has chosen to do. It didn't go well for Job when Job tried to do that. But what this is doing is charging God with wrongdoing. And so Paul, he draws a line in the sand to that kind of, of vain thinking, and in essence says, you've gone way too far. That you think God owes you an explanation for why he has chosen whom he has chosen, why he chose Jacob, why he didn't choose Esau? So verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man? Who in the world do you think you are? Puny little man? Little piece of marred clay that you would subpoena God to come into the courtroom of your mind and give you an explanation for what God is doing? God does not owe you an explanation. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, not to you, to God. Who are you, O man? It's intended to be sarcastic. It's intended to be putting this imaginary objector into his place and and reducing him down to Lilliputian size. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? No more back talk to God. Who are you to dare question God's choices? You are assuming the moral high ground over God and posturing yourself as superior to God. You are an arrogant, irreverent, foolish man. God owes you no further explanation. How dare you indict God with your question or your indictment that this isn't fair? Or how can you hold man responsible? You need to get back in your shell, little man. In the middle of verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Paul uses the analogy of the potter and the clay, and God is the potter, and all of humanity is is dirt. It's just marred clay. Pieces of dirt do not call the sovereign into account. You need to remember who you are, O man. Shall the creature call the creator into account? Such an incriminating accusation against God is unsufferable. It is intolerable. God will not be subpoenaed and brought into your courtroom to answer your questions and wait for your verdict on how God is doing. You would think Paul would let it go at this point. But Paul, it's almost like a dog with a bone. 
So he says in verse 21, or does not the potter, that's God, have a right, exousia, supreme authority. I remember R.C. Sproul explaining to me exousia means that it's out of self, that, that God's authority is out of himself, that there is no delegated authority given to God by someone else of a higher power, that all of God's supreme authority, all of God's sovereign throne rights are from within himself and out of himself. That's what the word exousia means. Does not the the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump all of humanity? God can take this one lump of humanity and God can make some to be vessels of honor, and that would be like a beautiful vase. A, a fine piece of, of, of pottery to put out on display to enhance the beauty uh, of the house, to use to serve guests a meal. But he can also, out of this same lump of clay, choose to make vessels for common use. And, and what that means is he, he can make out of this same, very same clay, no different than those that are made for honorable use, God can make trash cans. God can make toilets. God can make privies to take human excrement out of the house and put it out behind. And it all comes from the same lump of clay. But the point is obvious that God is sovereign over all of humanity And God can choose to do with humanity as He pleases. Some to be chosen to be objects of of grace. And others fulfill a different purpose. For God to show off other attributes of God on them. For God to show off His wrath and His power and His patience on them while God shows off His love and His grace and His compassion on these, but it's all about God putting His glory on display. And God is glorified in the salvation of the elect, and God is glorified in the damnation of the reprobate. God is glorified with both choices. So, verse 23, and he did so to make, to make known, to go public with this. He did so to make known the riches, plotas, fabulous wealth, to make known the fabulous wealth, the riches of his, of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And God put His wrath and power and patience on display so that His mercy would shine even brighter. If everyone receives mercy, then mercy is compromised. And mercy no longer shines like bright stars on a dark night. But if the vast majority receive wrath and power and patience, then mercy, which is used somewhat sparingly with the remnant, it it, it shines even brighter than if everyone just receives mercy. So finally, verse 24 an unrestricted choice. God's sovereign choice now extends far beyond Israel, which has been the singular focus in Romans 9. If Israel is the chosen nation, then why isn't Israel saved? And as he comes to verse 24, he shows this unrestricted election of God that extends far beyond 
the Jacobs of Israel, but it extends to the four corners of the earth. And so verse 24, even us, that would refer to the Roman believers with the apostles, even us whom he called, again, sovereignly, irresistibly, called into fellowship with Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. Not from among Jews only, ethnic Israel, but also from among Gentiles. That would be most of us here today. From every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. How vast and expansive is the mercy and the saving love of God for sinners. So verse 25, and he, God, says also to Hosea, I will call those who are not my people. That's, that's the Gentiles, those who are far away from God, Ephesians 3. I will call those who are not my people, my people. That's a dramatic conversion. And the reason they become my people is because God calls them out of darkness into the light. He calls them out of the world into the kingdom of God. And her, referring to individual Gentiles, who was not beloved, beloved. That is saving love. So verse 26, and it shall be in the place where it was said to them, referring to the Gentiles, you are not my people, they shall be called. And that is the effectual call of God. It's more than just they are being named this, they are being called to be this. And they shall be called sons of the living God and brought into saving relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 27, and we're finished. Isaiah cries out, that this verb cries out means to scream. Isaiah screams concerning Israel, ethnic Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, vast, large, it is the remnant. A relatively small portion. And I know in chapter 11 it will say all Israel will be saved. It's all of a very small amount. It is the remnant that will be saved. So what should be our response to this? What is the so what? There's 20 applications. (laughs) But I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. (laughs) And not suffer you. I'm just going to give you one. One. Humility. A proud, reformed preacher ought to be the ultimate oxymoron on the planet and might be closer to being a moron. How can we have our nose in the air? How can we be arrogant? How can we strut around? As a result of this, every one of us should say, Why me? There was no reason for you to choose me except whatever is in the hidden counsels of your mind. But for no apparent reason that I have provided, all I've done is sin. And you could have just hardened my heart and left me in my sin. And I would have deserved that. But you chose, you chose me to be beloved. You you chose me to be 
your people. And it all is the result of you. The only thing I've contributed is the sin that was laid upon Christ. When I entered seminary, I don't know that I'd even ever read Romans 9 to think about it. And for two years, I fought against sovereign election. Tooth and nail. I argued with students. No one would want to see me come into the break room. I would politely argue with professors. This just can't be true. Until God in his sovereignty chose to reveal his sovereignty to me. And it was there all along. At that time, I was a student in seminary, having to support my own way through seminary. And so, to do that, I created magazines. I wrote them, I produced them. One with the Dallas Cowboys. One with the Texas Rangers. And that was a whole lot more fun than second-year Hebrew. I went to practice with the Cowboys almost daily. I was on the sidelines with them when they were Super Bowl champions. Texas Rangers, I mean, I'm interviewing the Yankees, whoever comes to town. That was just a fun existence. Even my professors said, well, Steve, this is what God has for you. Tom Landry once said, Steve, this is God's call in your life. You just need to keep producing these magazines. And in the summer of 1978, Romans 9 hit me like a brick. Not only did I see the truth of it, I saw the truth as it related to me. And I realized, God, you didn't choose me to wander around in this world. You didn't choose me to just go be a sports writer. And some people, that is their vocational calling, but that wasn't for me. I realized, God, you have chosen me for a purpose. You haven't chosen me randomly. You have chosen me for a purpose, and that purpose could be poured through a keyhole. It's a very specific and narrow purpose, and that purpose is to preach your word and to tell people about Jesus Christ and to be your mouthpiece here upon the earth. I didn't even know you could sell a business. I was so naive. As a result of the sovereignty of God, I just literally shut everything down and got back in the classroom and sat where I'd never sat before. I sat in the middle of the front row and just tried to learn everything I could because I need this for the rest of my life, to preach with precision and power the Word of God. Has God chosen you? Are you predestined? Are you you the elect of God? Are you foreordained from before the foundation of the world? If so, God has a very specific purpose for you to be here on this earth. He has not only chosen you for heaven, but he has also chosen you to be his representative here upon the earth. And I pray that as a result of our time together these days, that you will double down on your commitment preach the word, that nothing will distract you because you are the elect, a part of the remnant. May you be faithful to that calling. Let us pray. Father, you have spoken loud and clear in your word. 
I think a deaf man could have heard this. I pray that these verses would cut to the bone and resonate within us with great power. We humble ourselves beneath your mighty right hand. And we ascribe to you the honor and the glory that belongs to you alone. You are opposed to the proud. You give grace to the humble. We have no reason to be proud. We have every reason to be humble. Lord, may the truth of Romans 9 fall afresh upon us and further shape us and mold us into the men that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.